Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Norman Conquest of England. This is an enormously important chapter in the history of England, and uh, I would say many of you have probably heard of it already. Many of you have heard of the, you know, 1066, the Battle of Hastings, and uh, the Battle of Stamford Bridge, William the Conqueror, all that sort of stuff. Uh, the end of Anglo-Saxon rule. Uh, this this whole thing. It, it began a, a line of Norman kings in England after this. And as I say, hugely impactful event in the course of English and, and even European history. And given, and I would say even further, given the worldwide importance of English as a as a culture and, and as a language today, uh, the consequences of the Norman Conquest are still felt over a thousand years later, still echoing throughout history here. And, and the story focuses on this bloke I mentioned before, I've already said his name, uh, William the Conqueror. We've all heard of him and, you know, sort of spoiler, spoiler alert here, he, he did manage to conquer England. The name kind of gives it away there. You know, we kind of ruined the ending already. Um, but there's a huge cast of other characters that we'll also get across, as well as a very, you know, very interesting story. We've got bloodlines and battles and betrayal and, well, actually, no, in fairness, there's not all that much betrayal. I just needed another word that started with B. So, yeah, anyway, let's get to it. Let's have a chat about the Norman Conquest, the Battle of uh, Battle of Stamford Bridge, the the Battle of Hastings uh, and all that other sort of, all the, all, that, all the other nonsense went with it. Here we go. So, we're going all the way back, all the way back to, well, actually, no, we're not going all the way back to 1066 today, despite what you might think. I actually, I want to give you a little more background as to how the conflict... Uh, that lead to the Norman invasion actually arose. And so we're going to go back a bit further. Well, look, honestly, the real reason I want to go back, if I'm going to be really, really honest here, the only reason I want to go back a bit further is to chat about some of the blokes involved in the lead up to the conquest uh, that actually don't really come into the story otherwise, uh, because some of the names of these blokes were just ridiculous. Absolutely absurd, some of these names. So we're going to start in, in, in the year 978, almost a century before the Norman conquest took place. And we're doing that so I can tell you about a bloke whose name was Ethelred the Unready. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of, uh, what are they called, epithets? A lot of a lot of sort of suffixes that get given to, uh, you know, to, to famous people throughout history. Alexander the Great, you know, Ivan the Terrible, all that sort of stuff. I don't know how I'd feel about being called the Unready. That's, uh, you know... That's not high on the list, I would say, of ones that you're picking, you know, when you're playing a game of Crusader Kings 2. Anyway, this fella, Ethelred the Unready, he was the King of England from 978 until 1013, and then again from 1014 to 1016. And he took the throne when his half-brother, Edward the Martyr, was was, well, as you probably guessed, when he was martyred. I mean, poor old Edward, he's going around looking over his shoulder the whole time with a name like the Martyr. You'd expect you'd be expecting something nasty to happen to you every, you know, every bloody second of the day. Anyway, Ethelred the Unready, he becomes king at the age of 12. And as I say, uh, he departs the throne uh, for good in, in 1016 when he dies. And I should say, he wasn't called Ethelred the Unready because he was never prepared for stuff. It's not like he, you know, was literally unready. I think it was uh, Eddie Izzard, the comedian, who had a great, had this great bit about Ethelred's advisors, you know, coming to him and saying, Oh, your Majesty, the the delegation is here. Your your appointment is ready. And Ethelred going, uh, yeah, hang on, yeah, just just I'll, you know, I'll be I'll be there in a minute. I'm just I'm just still still getting myself ready. Here. Um, his uh, his name is actually a pun. It's it's much more boring than than that. He's a uh, he, it, it it comes from the old English word unready. Uh, it, it meant 
poorly counseled and Ethelred means noble counsel. So it's actually just a really bad joke. It's 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 a joke on the fact that Ethelred means noble counsel or well counseled and poor and, and, and unready was poorly counseled or no counsel. So it would it would be like basically when, when when William takes the British throne, it would basically be the same of as calling him William the Wontium. Is kind of that's that's the level that we're on there. Anyway, You'll have noticed here that uh, that old mate uh, old mate Ethelred has got there's a, there's a brief gap in his reign between 1013 and 1014, and that was when Sweyn Forkbeard, who was the king of Denmark, invaded England. Uh, you'll be mystified by this bloke's name as well, Sweyn Forkbeard, king of Denmark. You know how how did they ever come up with that name for him? Well, I'll tell you, I figured it out. It's because he had a forked beard. And it's also because he was the King of Denmark. So very appropriate name there, Sweyn Forkbeard, King of Denmark. I don't know how they came out with that one, but they, they managed to get there all the same. Um, oh, actually, while we're on the topic, while we're talking about this bloke, I want to tell you about his dad. Let's go one generation back even further here, uh, because Sweyn's dad was Harold Bluetooth. I mean, I've learned something today. I didn't know Bluetooth was invented in the late 10th century either. We're all learning something today here, but uh, I guess there was a real lack of compatible hardware back then, so uh, so it never really uh, never really caught on. Harold Bluetooth was uh, he was actually called that because apparently he had this nasty rotten tooth in his gob that was all horrible. It was all black and blue and disgusting, so he got the name. I mean, I'm not a I don't know how I feel about it. you know. It's just sort of I, I, it makes me wonder what my the, what my epithet would be if I were a king back then, it'd be Riley the Slightly Balding or something like that, being named after, you know, a physical characteristic. Anyway, um, so the uh, – oh, actually, hang on. I, I, I did actually – I did a bit of digging here. and I want to tell you the real reason, the, the real thing about the naming of Bluetooth. So they say the official reason they say that they named the technology after Bluetooth uh, was because that Harold Bluetooth united Denmark, much as Bluetooth unites devices capable of wireless communication. Sure, whatever. I actually found the real reason, did a bit of digging and found the real reason for it. This is not a joke. One of the developers, Jim Kardak, was reading a book about Vikings at the time when, when this technology was being developed, and he thought it sounded cool. That is actually why Bluetooth is, is called Bluetooth. Anyway. Bloody hell, we are still a hundred years away from the invasion here. So let's crack on. This is going to take all day if we go if we keep going like this. So Ethelred the Unready, his reign was interrupted by Sven Forkbeard, who had a forked beard, and uh, he briefly conquered England in 1013 before dying just a few months later in 1014. After which Ethelred was then re-restored to the throne. Now this also didn't last because Sven's son picked up where his old man left off and continued to fight for control of England. So his dad Sven has gone and invaded, uh, succeeded died, Ethelred's got back on the throne, and now it's Sweyn's son who is picking up the mantle, and his son's name, and the party just don't stop here, was Canute the Great. That is C-N-U-T. Yes, hopefully not just a typo on the old birth certificate there. His name was Canute. Anyway... I mean, you can imagine what his mates are calling him at school. That one, that is, you, you are just throwing your child at the wolves, wolves calling them bloody Canute, aren't you? Anyway, Canute, he does a bang-up job. And after Ethelred's death in 1016, he becomes the king of England, as well as the king of Denmark and of Norway. This bloke creates the short-lived North Sea Empire, which I think is a fantastic name for an empire there. No, I'm not, you know, no, absolutely no mockery there. I think that is absolutely just, that, that sounds like something out of a D&D campaign, the North Sea Empire. Anyway. Canute, he dies in 1035, and unfortunately, the North Sea Empire again very short-lived. It uh, it collapses uh, upon his death. Uh, you know, good night, sweet prince, too precious for this world. Now, one of Canute's sons, whose name was Harthacnute, again, his actual name, 
uh, ends up with both the English and the Danish thrones by uh, 1040. He has a, a brief bit of argy-bargy with one of his brothers, Harold Harefoot. Apparently, Harold Harefoot could run very fast, hence the name. He didn't actually have a literal hare's foot, although that would have been very interesting. Um, but he could, yeah, he could run very fast, but not fast enough to outrun the disease that killed him, apparently, and allowed his brother, Harthur Canute, to take both the English and Danish crowns. So, Harthur Canute is king of uh, England and Denmark in, uh, in, in, in the year 1040, but in 1042, he dies as well, and the English throne goes to a bloke named Edward the Confessor, who uh, apparently did a lot of confessing. I mean, that's a very odd thing to pick apart for someone's epithet. Sure. I mean, what is it? What, what, what is it next? Riley of the chicken nuggets. I don't know. I mean, just something you enjoy a lot. I don't really understand that. Anyway, he's married. Edward is married to Hartha Canute's sister. And Hartha Canute's sister is also the son of old mate Ethelred the Unready. So if you thought Game of Thrones was, you know, this inventively complex fiction when it comes to titles and political marriages and successions and all of that, nope, it is just art imitating life here because this is, this is you know, exactly what, what went on throughout, uh, throughout human history. In any case, this finally brings us to the start of the story. After about, you know, bloody 10 minutes in, we've finally begun the story because this kicks off the Norman invasion of England, the reign of Edward the Confessor. Because when Edward the Confessor dies in 1066, that critical year, he does so without ever having sprogged out an heir. He's never had a kid. And this was perhaps because he was celibate all his life. We're not 100% sure if it was his celibacy. may have had a chaste marriage or, you know, maybe he just wasn't a big fan of, uh, you know, knocking boots with his, uh, with his lady there. Anyway, whatever the reason, he dies, he dies childless and he's, he, he, seems to have, he seems to have nominated a bloke as his, as his heir. This bloke whose name was Harold Godwinson. He seems to have said, all right, I want you to be king once I cark it. But Harold, Go- so the, the reason he picks Harold Godwinson is because he's, he's his brother-in-law. Edward is married to Harold's sister. But he's not the only claimant to the English throne. So between this, this tangle, the reason I told you this big tangled web of all these familial relations and everything else, else there like that is to explain that when Edward the Confessor dies, there are 100 million people who all have a claim to the English throne. And there are a bunch of them who are going to make a bloody good run at it as well. So Harold Godwinson has a very strong claim because he's the one that was pointed at when, uh, you know, when Edward was on his way out. But also wanting the crown of, uh, of England is Harold Hadrada who is a mercenary who had become the king of Norway after after amassing enormous wealth fighting in, in Eastern Europe. And then he'd come home and used all this wealth uh, to snag himself the Norwegian throne in the wake of the collapse of the North Sea Empire, you remember, in the 1040s. And Harold Hadrada is backed up by Harold Godwinson's brother, Tostig. So this is Tostig Godwinson, who is extremely pissed off that his older brother got the nod for the English throne instead of him. He's in exile. He's off. He's had a big bust up with his brother a couple of years back or even just a few, just a few months back even like that. And of course, amongst all the other, you know, all the other claimants, all the you know, hundreds and hundreds of people who wanted to plonk their ass to the English throne, there's another very important one we need to talk about, another very, very important one indeed, and that is, of course, William of Normandy, or as he was also known back then, William the Bastard. Now, uh, obviously, these days, we know him as uh, as William the Conqueror, but of course, they didn't call him that then. It would have given away the ending, so they decided to sort of, you know, no, no spoilers just yet, William the Bastard. Um, and he was called the Bastard because he was quite literally a bastard. He was the illegitimate child of, of uh, Robert I, the Duke of Normandy, and the Duke's mistress. Uh, and, you know, not because, for example, he never paid his mates back or, you know, slept with their girlfriends or whatever. So, uh, William, he's the Duke of Normandy. He's based there on the northern coast of France, and uh, he's also a cousin 
of Edward the Confessor. He's dis- he's distantly related to Ethelred the Unready. So these blokes are, you know, are on the same sort of branches of the family tree here. And he claimed that Edward had promised him the throne in the 1050s. Now, he says that this gives him, a, you know, his familial relationship and also, you know, with the dead king and also the fact that he'd been given the tap on the shoulder there. He says that this is enough of a claim for him to pursue, uh, you know, trying to trying to seize the, the English crown for himself. And so he, he starts to gear up for a scrap as well, as well as Harold Hadrada over in Norway as well. So there's, a, you know, things are, things are getting pretty serious here. And uh, after this obscenely long bit of stage setting, we can finally get into what was actually going on with the Norman Conquest itself. So in the wake of the death of Edward the Confessor, there's no clear path for succession. Again, Edward seems to have nominated Harold Godwinson, but William is claiming he'd been promised the throne previously. And Harold Hadrada, that's uh, that's actually, it's Harold with an A, so it's Harald rather than Harold, Harold Godwinson with an O. Harald, uh, he's basing his claim on an agreement that was made between a previous uh, king of Norway, Magnus the Good, again, not great, not terrible, not, you know, just in between, just just good, Magnus the Good, he was, he was all right, um, and old mate Harthacnut, right? So apparently Magnus and Harthacnut, they made an agreement which now gives uh, old mate uh, Hardrada, uh, it gives him a legitimate claim uh, to the English throne as well. But look, despite all these claims, despite everything that everyone's chucking around as well here, it is Harold Godwinson who is confirmed as uh, as the king of England by the Wittnagamot, right? Now, this was obviously very different from the Wizengamot in Harry Potter, of course. They had very different purviews and they, they oversaw very different things. Uh, the Wittnagamot was basically just a fancy way of saying a king's council or, or, or an assembly of senior nobles. Now, Harold, he is crowned as the King of England on the 6th of January, the very next day after Edward's death. Time is of the essence, he knows that. And he, he had a bit of a home ground advantage here. He was already in London. He was surrounded by all the English knobs. And therefore, he was able to use that to his advantage. And he was able to snag the crown immediately. Now, Obviously, that didn't work out super well for him in the long term. The story just doesn't end there, you know, with William and... Imagine that. Imagine if that's the podcast. All of a sudden, yeah, William and Hadrada, they just go, oh, well, yep, he beat us to it. Yeah, he's faster than bloody old Harold Harefoot. He was. And, you know, then I sit here for another 20 minutes with nothing else to say because the story's over. No, that's not what happens, of course. William hears of the coronation. He says, nope, that's not going to cut it. And he leaps into action. He orders the construction of a massive fleet of hundreds and hundreds of ships to transport an army he's going to put together across the English Channel in readiness for an invasion. Now, he's not the only one who gets busy either, because after the coronation, Tostig, who is Harold's brother, you'll remember, Harold Godwinson's brother, he also begins to raid the southeast coast of England with a fleet of ships, because again, he was in exile, so he puts together these uh, these raiding parties, and he starts to harass his, uh, his older brother here. Tostig had been outlawed, he'd been exiled the year beforehand, partly because of Harold's influence with King Edward. He absolutely hated his brother as a result, and he, he had his eye on the crown as well, but his raids are ultimately unsuccessful. He recognises that uh, the, Brit- the, the, the English, I should say, Britain doesn't exist as a as a nation at this stage, of course, it's just England. Um, uh, the English uh, naval power vastly outstrips his, and 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 he's forced to flee as soon as uh, as soon as Harold Godwinson starts to uh, threaten to mobilise there, and so he buggers off north. He retreats up up north to Scotland, and there Tostig he spends the summer licking his wounds, trying to recruit new followers, and planning his next move to unseat his older brother, which I would I will say is a classic younger brother move. It's a classic younger brother move, trying to undermine, you know, what your older brother's trying to put together. That's what younger brothers are doing around the world everywhere, even today. Anyway, knowing that Harold Hadrada was, was, uh, was keen to claim the English throne, right, Tostig decides, look, I'm not going to be able to do this alone. You know, I'm the younger brother. I don't have enough, uh, I don't have the guts for it. I don't have the manpower for it. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, uh, you know, 
basically hitch my wagon to uh, to someone else here. And so he gets in touch with the Norwegian king, uh, Harald Hadrada, and to, to see if he's interested in a bit of a collab, right? Saying, "Listen, I'll you know I'll chuck my guys behind you uh, if you you know and, and add, add my uh, add my weight to this fight behind behind you if you know if, if you know you'll back us up when we when you finally get there and remember me fondly when I you know, I help put your uh, your ass on the English throne here." And it turns out that Harold is indeed uh, Hadrada is very very interested uh, in in, uh, in working with uh, Tostig there. Thank you very much for that. And so Tostig promises to back up the Norwegian army with his own forces when Harold finally invades England. And, uh, you know, again, he's not hoping to snag the kingship for himself, Tostig, but he just wants to be in a good position and, and of course, see his brother get screwed over as well. Meanwhile, down south, King Harold, he has gotten word of William's invasions plan, something uh, that was obviously not being kept secret, very difficult to keep, uh, you know, manoeuvres and preparations of, of that size. William was already known as, a, you know, he, he had plenty of military experience. He was a very, uh, he was a very uh, you know, capable commander and uh, he had plenty of men at his disposal already so you know when that's when word gets out that he's planning an invasion that that's of course something that uh, Harold Godwinson quite worried about and so what he does is he parks all of his troops over the south coast of England, ready to deal with any invasion that you know this bastard from Normandy might attempt here? Now that's all well and good for a while, as he's bolstering the, the southern defences of uh, you know of, of of England there. But by the time we get to the summer, many of these soldiers they go to the king and they say, "Sorry, listen here, Your Majesty, old mate, we have to we just have to go. We've got to pack up and head home. We've got some stuff to take care of back there. You see, you know, we we we've just got to get out of here. We can't sit there on our asses just you know watching the uh, watching the English Channel for these Norman." Uh, for these Norman warships. Here's the thing. These soldiers, they weren't even really soldiers. That's not the right word for them. They're not soldiers in the way that we would uh, understand it today. Having a trained standing army, it wasn't really a thing at this point. Rather than, you know, a professional army, you'd actually, you just pull together militias from, uh, from you know, levies from the from the towns and the villages you'd ruled. And most of them were just peasants. Most of them were just common farmers and whatever else they're like that. Which means that when the harvest time comes around, all these blokes guarding the southern coast, they're going to go back home. They're going to go back home to, you know, bring in the harvest. Otherwise, the country's going to bloody starve to death if the, if, you know, if the, if the harvest's not brought in. So, despite King Harold doing his best to prepare for an invasion from the south, the realities of the situation kick in, and in early September, he's forced to stand down, you know, much of his, much of his men, many of his men there on, on the south coast there, so they can go home and harvest the crop. on the, uh, crops. On the 8th of September, he, he lets a bunch of them go, and all of a sudden, his presence on the south coast is, is greatly, greatly diminished. And of course, it's only after this happens, it's only after harvest time comes around that Hadrada finally makes his move. He's got some, a great sense of timing here and he recognises, right, now's the time to strike. He loads around 10,000 troops onto 300 Viking ships and he sails across the North Sea. This Viking king coming across, the, like, you know, like they've been doing for hundreds of years uh, to, to, to pillage and, and, and uh, well, not, not just sort of pillage and loot this time. They're actually wanting to set themselves up for good. But again, the Vikings have been harrying the, uh, the east coast of England for a long time and they're here to do it once again, this time led by Harold Hadrada and, of course, backed up by Tostig. Um, so he sails across the North Sea. He lands up north somewhere not too far from York. He's joined by Tostig and, Tostig and his troops, as promised, and they march south towards the city of York, intent on capturing it. Now, they are intercepted on the way by uh, the forces of two of Harold's earls. Now, Harold, uh, he's got some, he's still got, you know, the loyalty of many of the, of the English earls, and two of them, they jump to it, and they go to try to see off this Viking invasion. On the 20th of September, their forces meet uh, the Norwegians, backed up by Tostig, Tostig, and this results in the Battle of Fulford. And it is an absolute disaster for the English. Hadrada and Tostig, they crush the English forces and deliver quite a blow to Harold Godwinson. 
they are able to move on to York. The city is under is undefended and it's forced to surrender. So the Viking invasion is going absolutely it's, it's going absolute gangbusters. They're having a great time already. Hadrada forces the people of York to, uh, and indeed of you know Northumbria more widely to support the invasion. Uh, he seizes supplies. He takes hostages. As I say, having a great time, and he uses these hostages as insurance to uh, to enforce his demands. He makes arrangements to collect even more supplies and even more hostages from Yorkshire. He gathers his army and he gets ready to continue his invasion. Meanwhile, in the south, King Harold, he is forced, after hearing news of this Viking invasion, he is forced to withdraw his troops from the south along the coast there and he orders a forced march northwards to meet Hadrada's invading army. This march is incredible. Harold gets his troops up towards York at a blistering pace. They are averaging about 40 kilometres a day. That may not sound like much, but that is quite a feat, marching you know, 10,000 troops across the country in just a matter of days there like that. And as he go, as he goes up the country here, he's picking up extra men wherever he can, you know, including some of them that were sent off to take care of the harvest. So his forces are growing by the day. King Harold Godwinson and his army, they arrive in York in just a couple of days. It's, again, quite a feat that he's managed to pull off here. But of course, by this stage, even just after a few days, Hadrada, he's moved on. He's found, he's uh, he's he's heading off for his, you know, getting ready for his next conquest there. And uh, and so now it's uh, it's Harold who is having to give chase to, uh, uh, to the Norwegian army there like that. He finds out from the people in York uh, where they'd gone. And of course, he marches his troops once again at top speed after the invading army. He's determined to wipe them out. The Norwegians had marched onto this little village uh, called Stamford Bridge. It's, this is where they'd agreed to collect more supplies and more hostages, as you know, as they'd agreed in, in York. And they are caught with their pants down. They are absolutely caught by surprise here by the English. When King Harold and his army, they arrived there on the 25th of September, they had no idea the English were even on the march, let alone, you know, much less that the, you know, the, 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 the bloody arrived and were ready for battle here. So it's an absolute disaster for, uh, for Hadrata. He, as I say, he's caught with his pants down here. King Harold's force march had done the trick. He'd taken the invading, invading army by surprise. And, uh, you know, this this was the direct co- consequence that led to the Battle of Stamford Bridge being, you know, the decisive battle that it was. According to historians that wrote about the battle, you know, not long after it took place in the years in the years after it, here's what happened. As the armies met here, obviously uh, Hadrada has been caught by a surprise, and he, he, he quickly tried, you know, both them maneuvering, to, both both the armies maneuvering to get in a position. But as they're doing this. A lone rider approached the Norwegian army. This is the story. This is, you know, this again, not might not be 100% true, but this is, this is how the story goes here. A lone rider approached the Norwegian army and hailed Harold Hadrada and Tostig Godwinson. Now, the rider didn't give his name or anything like that, but he offered Tostig an end to his exile and the restoration of his own titles if he would turn against Hadrada and join the, uh, join the forces, join the English forces there. Tostig then asked the rider, he said, what what will Hadrada receive if I you know if I say yes to this uh, this proposal? And the writer said he will receive seven feet of English ground as he is taller than other men. Before turning and riding back to the English army, can you imagine that? When Hadrada then asked asked Tostig who the writer was, Tostig turned to him and said, "That was my brother. That was Harold Godwinson himself." Talk about sending a bloody message. The guts of this bloke riding out by himself to meet with the enemy, demanding his brother's capitulation, and then promising Hadrada seven feet of English ground. What a power move. Unbelievable. Again, it may not be true, or, you know, perhaps only based on truth, but it's a bloody good story. And uh, anyway, 
Obviously, a last-minute peace deal was off the table, and so the armies, they swiftly drew up into battle formations. The Norwegians, they arranged themselves in a, in a defensive circle. They concentrated their heavy infantry at this namesake bridge to defend the choke point for the English advance, advances over the river. Uh, and the story goes that they deployed a, an enormous axeman, this uh, this bloke, this huge, big, great big bloke there, who single-handedly held up the English army by slaying 40 soldiers as they attempted to cross the bridge over the River Derwent there. And this axeman apparently was only brought down when an English soldier got into a barrel, floated down the river underneath the bridge, and then used a spear to stab up through the, uh, the bridge planks to kill him with the old crafty sneak attack there. Now, once again... This might be a bit of creative license on the part of the historians from back then, but but again, on the other hand, what a bloody good story. It does make me think, though, we sort of look back and go, oh, you know, these bloody stupid idiot historians back then, why couldn't they just tell the actual truth instead of fanning about with all the stupid bloody exaggeration and, and, and whatever else they get up to? And then I realised that I do exactly the same thing. Like, I invent made-up dialogue in half of these stupid podcasts so you know if i'm to be if i'm to be believed based on half ass history you know there's ancient roman nobles going around you know they used to address each other by saying you know big fella and old mate and all that sort of stuff so i'm, I'm just as guilty of it so you know i've just definitely i've de- I definitely had to renew or re- re- revisit my uh, my opinion of that sort of thing anyway the delay that the English faced in crossing the river, it allowed the Norwegians to form a shield wall. And once the English were all across, uh, the battle began in earnest. It was a long and it was a hard-fought battle, but the Norwegians were uh, were slowly and surely beaten down by the English. They were, the English were said to be better armoured than their enemies. Um, there was a late surge of reinforcements for the Norwegians, about 3,000 or so troops that had been left guarding the ships, uh, you know, raced to the battlefield, but it wasn't enough. The English won the day, and the few remaining Norwegian survivors, they routed and they fled. The Norwegian death toll was staggering. There were about 9,000 troops that had taken part in the battle, apparently, and over 8,000 of them were killed. Less than 1,000 survivors remained. It was an absolute massacre. And this included, uh, some, you know, two of the people that were killed, Tostig and Harold Hadrada. So it was a complete and utter victory there. It was, I mean, so complete was Harold's victory that he was able to force the surviving Norwegians to swear never to attack England again before being sent back to their ships to sail back home. Of the 300 ships, you remember I said that 300 Viking ships were deployed by Harold Hadrada to, uh, to attack England. Only 24 of them were, were needed to return with all the survivors of the Battle of Stamford Bridge back to Norway. So it was an absolute, an absolute, it was a horrific, horrific defeat for the Norwegians there. However, even with this victory under the belt here for Harold Godwinson, even with Harold Hadrada removed from the equation, Harold Godwinson had a long, long way to go in defending his crown. Because of course, far to the south in Normandy, William was still going full steam ahead with his invasion plans, still building ships, still mustering huge numbers of troops here. The estimates of how many people he had vary pretty wildly, but it's generally thought he had around 10,000 men, give or take a few thousand. And this included, very, very importantly, this included thousands of archers and, even more importantly, thousands of mounted Norman knights. The English army was basically just infantry. They had a few archers, but they had no cavalry. This gave the Norman army an important, I mean, a critical edge with their mixed unit army. These, you know, these heavily armoured Norman knights with, uh, you know, they, they, they were they were fast, they were, were manoeuvrable, and they were very, very powerful. And as a result, I mean, you know, that coupled with the experience that, uh, that William already had on the battlefield, it meant that the Norman fighting force really was something to be beheld. And William, I mean, that's that's not all that William has here. He doesn't only have the experience. He doesn't, you know, almost. He doesn't only have this enormous big army. He's also got 
patience. He also has an incredible level of patience. Despite being more or less ready to go in August, right, he was in no rush. He was in no rush whatsoever to launch himself into battle. He had taken Captain Jack Sparrow's advice and he was waiting for the opportune moment. Even after he'd made his preparations, the wind was against him. Harold was still guarding the south coast. William wisely recognised that now was not the right time to strike. He didn't want to, you know, just fly off the handle straight into, uh, you know, into the into the waiting arms of this English army. So he waited for the right time to strike, and that moment, of course, it came. After hearing that Harold had marched northwards to meet the Norwegian invasion, William realised that the time had come, and so he gave the order to ready the ships and the troops. And as a result. On the 28th of September, after a successful crossing of the English Channel, while King Harold was miles away, marching his exhausted troops south again after the Battle of Stamford Bridge, William the Conqueror, William of Normandy as he was known back then, he landed his troops in Pevensey near Eastbourne, and he quickly built a wooden castle in nearby Hastings, of course, with the King of England, King Harold Godwinson, miles away, and his army miles away as well, unable to do anything about this. So William chose his t- chose his moment absolute, absolutely perfectly here. It's fantastic stuff from him. From this castle that he built, William's forces then raided uh, the nearby towns and villages, uh, and this only not this not only secured supplies for the Norman army, but it also weakened the personal holdings of Harold. Right? These these lands belonged to him personally. They didn't belong to a, you know another duke or an earl or anything else that was underneath him. It was it was the personal holdings of him and his family. And this was a very very deliberate bit of provocation from William. Not only was he of course weakening you know the the, the actual personal property of, of of the king there. It was also designed, right, to anger the English king and motivate him into a rash attack on the Norman army. So, you know, thinking, and quite reasonably, the king would look at this and go, bloody hell, I've got to get down there and protect my lands before he burns all, all our crops and salts the earth and does all the rest of it. I've got to, get down, got, down, you know, got to get down there and defend what's mine. So it was a very clever bit of thinking from William because, of course, he knows that the sooner that his eager, fresh, and rested army got into battle with this tired, weakened and footsore English army, the better it would go for him. So he is very motivated to get this battle happening as quickly as possible. In any case, Harold continued his march south. He stops in London to rest and, re- and, and reprovision his troops for about a week, but then he continues on southward to Hastings. His troops are still not, you know, in, in, in fighting shape. They're still not looking too good after that big battle and that forced march. But again, Harold is walking straight into William's trap here. He recognises he's got to get down there. He's got to contest the Normans. Otherwise, William's going to expand his territorial holdings, his influence, his supplies, and whatever else, and do a lot of damage to uh, you know to the English that were that were the, the people that were living down there. Uh, you know, in in again in Harold's personally held lands as king. So, unlike in Stamford Bridge. Harold, he wasn't able to surprise the invading army this time. William had scouts on the hunt for any news of, of Harold. He knew he was hoping that Harold would come down and, and, and take the fight to him. And so he was very ready. William was very, very ready when the English army finally arrived. Now, King Harold, he did his best. Him and his army, they set themselves up on top of a hill called Senlac Hill, uh, near the very appropriately named modern town of Battle in East Sussex. It's where the battle, of course, took place. Uh, well, we call it the Battle of Hastings, and it's actually not really anywhere near Hastings. It's a good, you know, sort of two hours, two hour walk from uh, from Hastings. And the, the town that's there now is called Battle. So it's, I guess technically, if you wanted to sort of update the name, it would be the Battle of Battle, which is, you know, 
I mean, that's something to get the kids interested in history anyway. They're all going to want to hear about the, the, the Battle of Battle. Anyway, they set themselves up on top of this hill, as I say, the English there like this. Uh, it is, uh, it's where they're prepared to make their stand and his 10,000 or, 10, or so men, they position themselves uh, on the high ground. Now, obviously, this is an advantageous position to be in. Any strategy video game that, you know, you ever play, it'll tell you that you get a terrain bonus for having higher ground. I mean, look, Star Wars Episode Three highlighted the critical importance of the higher ground while in combat. And, you know, it's pretty much only... What it comes, I would say, second to the art of war as a seminal work on the principles of warfare here. So William, he's more than happy to meet the English on the battlefield, and despite them having, you know, the 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 an advantageous piece of terrain to fight on the English there, William doesn't care. He just wa- he, he wants this battle to happen. He recognises the time is of the essence, and he wants this. He wants to take the fight to the English. So he marches his troops north from their base in Hastings, and on the fourteenth of October. In 1066, the Battle of Hastings began as the Norman invaders bore down on the beleaguered English troops. The English arranged, they arranged themselves in a semicircle around the top of the hill. They set up a shield wall while the Normans were split into three divisions at the bottom of the hill, each approaching from a different angle. William began the battle with volley after volley of arrows from his, uh, from his archers there, shooting uh, up the hill, which didn't do much, to be honest. It actually wasn't a particularly effective technique because, of course, shooting uphill is never a position that you want to be in. And also on top of that, they were shooting into a shield wall. So it didn't do all that much damage to the English to start things off. And then... When the Norman troops arrive at the English shield wall, even with the cavalry, they had a lot of trouble breaking through. In fact, the first attack was very successfully repelled by the English, and the Normans were so badly beaten in this first little skirmish that they began a partial retreat. Some of them started turning their tails and running back down the side of the hill. Part of this was due to the fact that rumours were swirling amongst the Normans that William had been slain. They thought he was dead. The English, they gave chase to the retreating Normans, hoping to rally. Them. This was not a good move by the English, I will say. It quickly turned to disaster. It was an undisciplined manoeuvre there because William, who was very much alive, on his horse, he took his helmet, he raised his helm, he showed his face to his troops and pelted down the Norman lines on his horse, showing, rallying them to him, rallying them to him and, and, and inspiring them to, uh, to continue to fight the English here, especially now that the shield wall had had broken. These English, they'd smelt blood and they'd broken their shield wall. And again, not by the Norman advances, but actually, funnily enough, by the beginnings of a Norman retreat. The English, they'd peeled away to give chase and now a Norman counterattack was possible. William himself led the charge against the, uh, the broken English lines there and killed or routed the English who had been in pursuit. And after suffering terrible losses in this skirmish, the English reclosed their shield wall, retreated back up to the top of the hill there and focused on pure defense there. William and the Normans drew back rather than press the attack from the top of the hill with the shield wall, uh, you know, put back together there. They were happy to cut to, or to, you know, to, to quit while they were ahead and, and, and return back to, to regroup and, uh, and revisit their strategy. But now comes my favorite part of the whole story. This is, this is absolutely 100% true what happened here. By this stage, the day had been getting on a bit. They started fighting at about nine o'clock in the morning. And by now, after, you know, a couple of hours of fighting, it was getting close to lunchtime. So do you know what happened? The armies, this is not a joke. The armies sat down 
to have a bit of a lunch break. Amazing. They pause pause the battle like it's a bloody video game. Have a, you know, a sandwich and a drink. Get off their feet for a bit. Oh, you know, tough old morning in the office. Oh, mate, sure bloody was. Bloody hell. Boss has got us working on a Saturday. It's just not right, is it? I just love that mental image. These blokes, you know, sitting there in their bloodstained chain mail, chomping down on a bit of lunch. Oh, what did you bring? Oh, very nice. Oh, good. Is that leftovers from last night? Oh, yeah. Enjoying all the the office gossip there. Brilliant. Anyway. They're all back at it before long. The lunch break is over, of course, and they're back to it, uh, back to the battle here. That William, uh, in the meantime, has he been having a bit of a think about uh, having a bit of a think, think about things when it comes to his strategy, when it comes to his tactics here. He recognises how successful this sort of uh, partial retreat had been, and and he recognises that the English soldiers aren't particularly disciplined. He realises that it's worth giving it another go. He actually decides he orders his cavalry to attack and then feign a retreat to tempt the English into pursuing again. And look, it works to a, to a degree, not as much as it did before. But the uh, the cavalry, the Norman knights, they charge in, they're chucking the swords around, then all of a sudden they start to pull back, they start to fall back, pretend that they're routing, and some of the English, again, they peel off to chase them and they are cut down mercilessly. However, it doesn't break the shield wall and the English defences do manage to hold for a little longer here. However... Between the cavalry, between the archers, between being harassed by the infantry, you know, between the, I would say, general superiority of the Norman fighting force, this mixed unit army based, you know, fighting basically against just an, an army, army of infantry here, the Normans slowly but surely gain the upper hand. They wear away at the shield wall. It was becoming harder and harder for the English to cope with the casualties that they were sustaining as the battle went on. And leading these constant, unrelenting cavalry attacks on the English is William himself. And that, of course, is a very inspiring thing to see. The uh, the, the morale from a uh, you know from having a, 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 a well-respected leader on the battlefield is, is very difficult to overstate. And uh, William leading the charge there like that, he is fighting like a demon. He had true or two or perhaps even three horses Horses cut out from underneath him. He was going at it so hard, and that I'm sure you know inspired the Norman troops onto greater heights. But the decisive moment in the battle it came a little bit later on in the afternoon as dusk began to fall. The battle raged on for hours, and Englishmen and Normans threw themselves at one another. But the English were finally dealt a fatal blow when King Harold after marching up and down the length of his country to defend it from these invaders, finally fell. We're not 100% sure how Harold was killed. There's the famous tale of him, of course, being shot through the eye. It might be true, although it also might not. There are so many varying accounts. It's actually very difficult to know which one has the right of it. He may have taken an arrow to the eye, but he may have also been killed by a Norman knight after having an eye injury uh, that you know wasn't necessarily fatal. He may also have just been killed in the press of battle. He may have just been cut down by an unknown soldier somewhere. Who knows? One source claims that it was actually William himself who killed Harold, but that's very unlikely because you know if that was so it probably would have cropped up in other stories it would have cropped up in other sources as well it's a you know it's a bloody it's a ripper tale so you'd think that people would have sort of picked up on that if that were if that had actually been the case at the end of the day we don't really know how this poor bloke met his end the famous bayo tapestry which you probably heard of it's uh, you know about 70 meters long or something and it te- it's not, it's technically not a tapestry it's an embroidery if you want to be, get really really finicky about it because it was stitched and not woven but uh, it tells the story of the norman conquest you can go and visit it t- today in northern france and uh, and see it for yourself it's still you know it's been uh, it's been uh, kept around for you know 
hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, it, it has a little scene in it where there's a bit uh, with a bloke with an arrow sticking out of his eye with the words, here, King Harold is killed. So it's not unreasonable to reckon that the, you know, the arrows and the eyes might have had something to do with it. But but ultimately, who knows? What we do know, however, is that the after the after the death of their leader, the English broke. Some of them rallied, some of them fought to the death bravely surrounding the body of their lost king, but many broke, routed, fled the battlefield and handed the victory to the Normans. And look, it's unsurprising, really. This might sound, you know, a little brutal. This is the sort of aftermath, the analysis here, but it is actually quite unsurprising that Harold and his English army were vanquished. There were quite a number of reasons why they probably were always going to face defeat in the Battle of Hastings here. First of all, Harold was having to basically hold off two concurrent invasions, one in the north, one in the south, and he was just spread too thin. He was too he spread too thin across too great an area, didn't have the resources, didn't have the men to contest both Harold in the north and William in the south at the same time. And that leads to our second reason here, having to march his army all the way up the country and then all the way back bloody down at such a great pace meant that his troops were exhausted and unable to fight at their full strength. And this is, of course, on top of reason number three, which is that he hardly had any troops to begin with. He'd, he'd bloody dismissed them all in September to go and take in the harvest. But, I mean, he didn't really have a choice there either, because if he hadn't let all of his troops go to go and, you know, bring in the harvest, his country would have starved to death because they wouldn't have been up, you know, wouldn't have been any bloody food for the winter. On top of this... William was also able to demonstrate his absolute perfect timing with the invasion he staged. Of course, he waited for the opportune moment to land on an undefended coastline. He ravaged Harold's land with raging and pillaging, forcing him to respond quickly and staged another force march to prevent William's continued onslaught there. So it really was just masterful stuff from William in terms of picking his moment there. And fifthly, which doesn't even really sound like a real word at this point, William was an experienced leader of, a, of, a, of a, a, what was essentially just a stronger military force. He had cavalry against an army that was exclusively infantry-based, and his troops were disciplined where the English were not. And uh, we saw that with the, uh, with the English uh, giving into disastrous pursuits and ultimately breaking and routing once the battle had concluded there. So, in any case, whatever the reasons were, William and his Norman army won the day and fully expected Harold's lords and earls to capitulate to the enormous invading army that had just secured this monumental victory. Surprisingly, however, they did not. The Wittnagamot instead proclaimed a bloke named Edgar the Etheling as King of England. Now, of course, as we all know, it didn't last. William bore down on London at a great rate of knots with his army, determined to seize the English capital and the crown that came with it. And many English earls, even some who had supported Edgar initially, surrendered or defected to the Normans. And poor old Edgar, he was actually never properly crowned. He doesn't really factor in on a lot of lists of, uh, of previous English monarchs because, you know, he, he again wasn't ever officially made king with a crown on, on his noggin there. William did fight a few minor, minor battles and skirmishes on his way to London, but uh, broadly speaking, he captured the city in December 1066 without too much of a struggle. The remaining English leaders finally surrendered to him without too much of a fight there. And so this meant that on the 25th of December, 1066, a new chapter in the history of the English monarchy began when William the Conqueror was crowned as the King of England in Westminster Abbey, claiming the throne by right of conquest. And today, in 2019, Queen Elizabeth II can directly trace her lineage all the way back 
to William the Conqueror. She is his great, 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 great granddaughter. William ruled England until his death in 1087, and throughout that period he had to contend with rebellion and revolts within England initially, he had to hold off a Danish invasion in the 1070s, and even in the grand tradition of English monarchs throughout history, he had to go through a brief spat with the Scottish, where he forced Scottish King Malcolm III to bend the knee there, so, you know, very much... uh, you know, embracing the tradition of, uh, of, of English, English people everywhere by oppressing the Scots. But uh, more broadly, I think it's important to consider the, the impact, the legacy of William the Conqueror. He drastically changed the course of history for England and, and, by, and by extension for Europe and, and even the world on a much, much broader scale here. His actions changed the way that things would play out. Even for every single person listening to this podcast, you're listening to this podcast in English, the language spoken by the people who lived in the country that he invaded, a language, a people, and even a country that would never be the same after William seized power in England. William and his Norman descendants, they changed the course of English history, and given the worldwide spread and influence of English-based culture throughout the later stages of human history, it's difficult to overstate his impact on the history of our civilization. And it's all because some bloke on top of a hill once copped an arrow to the eye. Well, you know, probably, anyway. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Norman conquest of England. Couple of quick housekeeping things before we wrap up for today. Halfasthistory.net, of course, is the website. Please go and give it a visit. You can find the uh, the links to uh, subscribe on iTunes or on Spotify. And a special thank you this week to all of the people who have been generous enough with their time to write me reviews on iTunes. I really appreciate it. It's so very, very kind of you to uh, to have done that. Thanks so much. If, if you've got a second, you want to add your review to the pile, I, I, if you want to do me a quick favor, that, that'd be fantastic. I've been told that it, can, it, it helps to boost the numbers or the listenership of podcasts quite immensely. So, I, you know, I really, really appreciate people going and doing that for me. And also, of course, all the people on Patreon who can who, who continue to support the show with their uh, with their monthly contributions. Thank you so much. Merch bundles are still on their way. If you haven't got yours yet, uh, give it a little bit of time. Sometimes it can take a long while for, for posts to come through, especially if it's, you know, crossing the Atlantic or, or whatever else they're like that. So uh, let me know if, if, you know, we're sort of looking at if, if the end of the year you haven't received it yet, let me know and I'll and I'll shoot you through another one because, uh, yeah, obviously I, I want to make sure everyone gets their hands on that sort of stuff. Uh, the shop should be opening up in the coming weeks. Uh, it is on my list of things to do, which is longer than I would like it to be, but I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. So people who are interested in buying themselves a T-shirt, whatever else, you should be able to do that again before the end of the year. That's what I'm hoping for. Anyway, that's enough of that boring nonsense. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Please tell your friends about it, tell your enemies about it, tell everyone about it, and uh, hopefully we can uh, continue to push those numbers up. It's been great to uh, to see half our history explode in popularity this year, and I'm, I'm hoping to you know just drive it even further and further, further upwards. So uh, thank you so much for uh, being part of the uh, being part of the whole thing. Anyway. Closing out the show as usual with a question posed on Reddit. This week it's Reddit historian Erbel who has a very relevant question for us here this week. Why is it called the Norman Conquest when the guy's name was William? <laughs>